Welcome to Reconciling Grace, a program where church leaders discuss various topics from the Bible. During the discussions, there may or may not always be agreement from every panel member on every point, but there is full agreement on the fact that the way to God the Father is through the reconciling grace of Jesus Christ. And this is Pete Vecchi welcoming you to this episode of Reconciling Grace. I'm one of the associate pastors at West Carrollton Church of the Nazarene, and we're going to be discussing today the topic, Do Christians Need To? And we'll get to what they are going to be asked if they need to do here in just a few moments. Joining me today is Mick Wells, who is co-host of the Cross Connection radio program and who's been part of Wells of Salvation Ministries since 1980. And also with me today is Steve Wilson, who's a Christian author with a master's degree from United Theological Seminary in Dayton. And Steve is going to be the one who's going to kind of take the lead on these uh, Do Christians Need To episodes. In fact, we're looking at having different episodes about Do Christians Need To uh, on and off um, probably for the next several weeks or even months as we go along. And Steve, what were the two things today that we were talking about that... uh, We'd like to say, do Christians need to? We're going to be looking at, do Christians need to go to the altar to be saved? And do Christians need to say the sinner's prayer? And we'll get into uh, kind of some variations on those topics. Okay, great. And uh, did you have anything that you wanted to start out with? I'll just preface the topic by saying we all have ideas of what Christianity looks like, about what is Uh, normal for Christians to do or not do. And so this series, we're just going to uh, kind of pick that apart, kind of challenge those ideas. So the first question about uh, conversion, do Christians need to answer an altar call to be saved? Well, let me share that uh, I don't think so. I think uh, altar calls are, are fine. I think they, it'd be interesting to study what the genesis of altar calls, maybe it comes out of the Charles Finney revivalism. And, yeah, town meetings. Yeah, where they had, uh, let's see, a mourner's bench, and they had, you had to have tissues there. People uh, pursued what they call praying through, which mm-hmm. is probably a topic unto itself. But uh, I think what takes place in the heart of the of the individual seeking God uh, is the most important thing. And when you ask that question, Steve, the first thing I thought of was an old country song where the the fellow sings, uh, me and Jesus got our own thing going. He said, he went out one day and made an altar out of a stump. I really believe that the importance is responding to God when he calls uh, you to uh, accept Jesus as, as Lord, um, and, and not so much uh, where you are. But I do, in all uh, sincerity, I've known of people that believed they couldn't get saved until the next series of meetings and in response to an altar call. But I really believe that God goes beyond what I'll call those kinds of human traditions or trappings, and uh, we should be responsive whenever uh, and wherever we are, not just in a church building. Yeah, because I know a lot of people then who um, maybe might not be Christians if they have to wait to do it in an altar or whatever. Um, 
I won't say who because this could be kind of embarrassing, but um, there was one young child who I knew who was talking about Jesus and asked Jesus into his heart when he was in the stall of a restroom at a restaurant. (laughs) And he, to this day, will say that was when he got saved. And this person is an adult now. I mean, this, this, this person was probably four years old at the time and has lived, I know this person, has lived the Christian life since then. And this person is, you know, this is, this is probably 25 years ago or so that this happened with this person. So he has lived to adulthood, believing that's when he was saved. I know that I was saved in maybe a form of an altar call, but there was no altar. It was in the home, the living room of a neighbor's house. They had vacation Bible school there when I was about seven or eight years old. And they asked if anybody wanted to ask Jesus into their hearts to come forward. And there was no altar. I remember standing there and asking Jesus into my heart. And I know that I was serious about it because when they asked the same thing the next day, I went back just to make sure. (laughs) And when they said, and again, this isn't necessarily theologically correct, but it's the, it is the um, faith of a child. I, I can still picture myself within several days after that, praying and looking at my chest, walking down the street because Jesus now lived in my heart. How old were you? I was probably about seven or eight years old at the time. I remember... I was at an altar in a church under my dad's ministry. He was pastor of a um, old Pilgrim Holiness Church in Elmwood Place. In uh, it's a suburb of Cincinnati, and I responded uh, to that altar call. I still remember it. Um, and uh, but I again, I'll reiterate. I don't think you have to be at an altar or in response to a specific altar call as we've come to know them. Right. Steve, what was your... Yeah. The uh, thing I believed in Jesus before, but the first uh, time I remember responding to such a call was in junior church. The uh, little old lady who was teaching us told us to to all turn around uh, and kneel down uh, with our elbows on the chair, folding chair that we were sitting in, and and to say a prayer if we wanted Jesus to come in our heart. And... uh, so I don't, I don't think that's when I was saved, but I think that's the moment that I remember responding to a call like that. Um, so I think we're, we're all in agreement that we don't have to answer an altar call to be saved. Um, we're all preachers here to some degree. I wonder, why do we give altar calls then? What's the, uh, what's the impetus behind that? I would say, uh, to quote Fiddler on the Roof, tradition. I think it's become a tradition from the old revival circle days and carried on, in my experience, largely in holiness traditions. And I don't know that it's something that it's even done as much now from when I was first introduced to the Church of the Nazarene. uh, It was through my wife uh, before we were married. Um, I, I really knew nothing about the Church of the Nazarene before she and I met. Um, but the, quote, altar call that was given during the Church of the Nazarene t- at the time that Melody and I met uh, happened a whole lot more 
than it does now. Now, this is not to say that it doesn't still happen in other denominations, things like that. I mean, Billy Graham, as we're talking today, uh, passed away just uh, a month or so ago, and he was, if you want to call it the master of the altar call, um, he, he used those things wonderfully. And God does still use those things. But I think you're right, Mick. I think it's a lot of tradition that goes into that. Yeah, I can recall some years ago at the uh, Wesleyan Church I attended um, here locally, we actually took it upon ourselves. Now, there wasn't a fixed altar. Somebody had made one on hinges that you set up. And to make a point, um, I succeeded in getting him to take the altar down and putting it in a back room because coming to Jesus doesn't require kneeling at that wooden uh, product that somebody in the church had fabricated. I wasn't trying to be mean or anything, but sometimes it almost posed, came across like a barrier between the congregation and the pastor, and I was just making a point that this is an issue of the heart and coming to Jesus not necessarily kneeling at a piece of furniture. Right. I think uh, the tradition is effective, though. Right? There's, there's a lot of symbolism behind that, where you have to physically get out of your seat, uh, kind of make that uh, step of courage, that step of faith, walk down in front of everyone in a, in a public acknowledgement of, yes, uh, I am responding to the Spirit here, and then to put yourself on the altar, just as, as folks in the Old Testament will put their gift, uh, their sacrifice on the altar. So I think it's, I think it's effective. I, I would in no way, uh, you know, encourage churches not to use it. But uh, as you've said, we've kind of gotten away from it a little bit just because maybe in the past it was overdone. Um, but speaking of that uh, kind of, momentous uh, moment of going to the altar, do you think that Christians need to have a moment like that where they have an emotional response, where, where they can look back and say, that time right there, that's when I was saved? If I recall correctly, um, you know the Christian singer Steve Green? Um, he wasn't saved out of a notorious sinful lifestyle. I think he grew up in a Christian family and his ministry flowed from um, his, if, if not a momentous conversion, from his uh, Christian upbringing. In other words, if I can, I, I can't quote him, but the whole gist of it was that I've been a Christian as long as I can remember and I can't think back to a specific uh, momentous time. And so, not, not that I would say conversion is gradual, and, and the reason for that is um, when we become Christians, the Bible tells us that uh, we receive a counselor, the Holy Spirit. I don't think the Holy Spirit comes into us gradually. I think he comes in when we become a Christian. And what does that mean? Well, to me, that means that we may not be able to recall a specific date and time stamp on our Christian walk, but I think it does happen about that quickly because we either have the Spirit or we don't. It's not a gradual indwelling. Right. One of the things that I've heard um, 
evangelists often say, um, and I and I firmly believe this, is that at the moment of salvation, when we accept Christ, we get all of the Holy Spirit we're ever going to get, but he doesn't yet have all of us. Mm. And in other words, we're still going to grow. And just to, to elaborate a little bit on what you said, Mick, about uh, like, for instance, the Steve Green experience, I have known people. Um, there are two people who I'm thinking of in my life, um, one from the past, one from present, who basically have said to me that they simply cannot remember a time when they didn't acknowledge Jesus as Savior. Now, this doesn't mean that they didn't have that experience, but they can't remember it. But at the time they were telling me these things, um, the one person is somebody who I have not seen for literally 30 years, so I can't speak to that person. But the, the other one is somebody who I see basically daily who says that they can't think of a time when they didn't know Jesus, but they profess Jesus now. And speaking of now, I think now would be the best time for us to take a little break for our sponsor, and we'll get back to this discussion after we hear from that sponsor. And we're back with today's episode of Reconciling Grace, and Steve Wilson has been leading us in the question of, do Christians need to, and specifically we've been talking about, go to the altar to be saved, and related questions. So Steve, why don't you pick up from there? I think we've agreed that Christians do not need to go to the altar to be saved, and right now we're talking about, do Christians need to have a momentous time in their life when they accept Christ? And uh, we've been talking about how some Christians can't remember a specific time. Um, I wonder what the two of you would say about uh, some churches' practice of confirmation. Confirmation, uh, for those who don't practice it, is usually done uh, sometime in the teen years when the church will have uh, the teenagers go through a class and kind of really examine their faith and maybe that point is the time when they would uh, mature into adults in the church, become members of the church, etc. Uh, you think confirmation is useful? Is it important for a Christian? Well, I think that for me, my understanding of, of the right of confirmation, right, R-I-T-E, um, stems a lot from our brothers and sisters in Christ who have um, denominational traditions that stem from the idea of baptism being the um, time when the Holy Spirit enters your life. So maybe our Roman Catholic brothers and sisters, or maybe our Episcopalian brothers and sisters, or our, or our Lutheran brothers and sisters, people like those, when, when there's a lot of infant baptism, where the belief is that the Holy Spirit actually comes into these people, and they can even be infants, and that's where the Holy Spirit comes into that person's life and starts influencing that person's life rather than having a time of decision. Now, I'm not going to get into all the theological ins and outs of that, but I've seen the right of confirmation come out of those traditions more. And again, I know a, a lot of Lutherans and Episcopalians and Roman Catholics who believe in Jesus Christ. I, I not, I'm not trying to say they're not saved. Um, you know, Jesus reconciles us to God the Father through his death and resurrection. 
Um, so confirmation to me, it's not a bad thing because it gets these people to seriously look at their faith. It gets them to look at what does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to have Jesus in my life? So I don't think that there's really anything wrong with it. Well, Peter, you talking about what we might call a catechism? A catechism to me is the idea of you take the catechism classes and then you are confirmed, you confirm your faith, or you confirm your, your, your position in the church at that time after the catechism classes usually, like for instance in a Lutheran church. Well, let's, let's use you and me as examples of our testimony of when we uh, gave our hearts and lives to Jesus. I was five. Mm -hmm. You mentioned you were seven. Something about that, yeah. Yeah. Well, the concept you're discussing, I think you mentioned, it happens in their teen years. So <laughs> what happens to the person that makes uh, uh, a confession of faith between that young age that we were and this time of confirmation? It sounds like a church tradition perhaps is, has standardized the process here that God may see as unique for each one of us. In I referenced the term uh, age of accountability, which I think is, uh, and I haven't done my homework on that uh, to talk to it today, but it basically says when you're in a position to understand um, that your need for Jesus and your need to uh, renounce sin and, and live for Jesus, pick up our cross daily, et cetera, it may vary from person to person. And so uh, you, you've got some years there in theory that uh, make you wonder, does God honor the conversion that you believe took place at age five, or, do you, or does he say you're still under prevenient grace because you're not accountable? Well, personally, um, I think that Confirmation, for instance, as a rite, R-I-T-E, is just a tool that can be used by God. It can be used by the church. And I don't mean tool in a negative way. I mean that in a positive way. It's something that God can use to help strengthen a person's faith. My own personal experience is that after I asked Jesus into my life at age seven or eight, again, I'm sorry that they never told me. I had to remember the date, so I can't remember exactly when it was. I remember the circumstance. But after that, I had very, very, very little instruction in the faith. In fact, this took place, as I said, in a neighbor's home. I was not part of that neighbor's church. And God bless the little old ladies, Steve, because it was a little old lady who, who led me to Christ the same way that happened with you in, in that junior church. But I had very little um, instruction afterwards. The church, as far as I know, didn't follow up with me. Maybe they did, and my parents didn't let them because we were nominally enough Catholics that they didn't want another church, you know, talking to their kids. I don't know. I have no idea. But it was not until I was a sophomore in college at age 19 that I came to the realization that I needed Jesus to have every part of me. And it wasn't until a number of years later that I looked back at my life and I said, you know when I was saved? It was not at 19, but it was back then when I was seven or eight. Mm. And so 
is a confirmation class necessary? Not necessarily necessary. How does that sound for a little bit? Of, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I uh, was a youth pastor in the Presbyterian Church USA for a few years. I had the opportunity to teach a number of confirmation classes. And for us, it was a, it was a catch-all. It was for these, these kids who had grown up in the church but had never really questioned their faith, uh, had never had that momentous, yes, I believe in Jesus moment, uh, to educate them, to make sure that we, un- that, that we knew that they knew what the church was about, what our beliefs were, uh, and to give them a, a, a time to examine the faith, to examine what it was that they believed. Let's go ahead and go to the next part of examining our faith. And a lot of Christians will talk about the sinner's prayer as part of the conversion process. Uh, the conversion, uh, the sinner's prayer might go something like, uh, yes, Jesus, I confess my sins and I ask you to come into my heart. Uh, is that uh, something that the two of you have prayed? Is that a, a similar prayer to uh, something that you were saved under? Well, I can tell you that um, following the guidance of um, my dad, he pretty much told me the elements of uh, approaching God for salvation. Um, I've seen the sinner's prayer, and there's, there's no one sinner's prayer that I've found. I actually went out the Internet and looked up the sinner's prayer and found multiple versions that alone tells me that there's not one magic set of uh, verbs and objects that I that I need to repeat. I think I think what happens again happens in the heart. God sees in the Old Testament tells us that people will look on the outside of you uh, to include what you say and do, but God looks upon the heart. So I think the issue here is that we understand what we're doing the gravity of what we're doing, and it needs to be genuine and sincere. Let's face it, any words I say in terms of my belief has all, have already been established in my heart. So I think God sees when you've made that commitment in your heart, and some people aren't very good with words. On the other hand, if, if you tell them, repeat these words and you're saved, you may think, well, it's like an open sesame. I'll say these words and I'm saved. But what really matters is is what's in your heart. So, um, it's not a magic incantation, is what you're saying, right? I, I found these words. There's a lot of scriptures that talk about uh, what to do to be saved. Romans 10 verses 9 and 10 are often quoted. It says, "If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord." and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved, for it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it's with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. So it's talking about verbalizing, I think, as a witness. It's actually an evidence of what's already taking place inside. I don't think the words are are magic, that they are the things that... uh, whether your salvation rises or falls on whether you say a certain set of words. Right, and in um, Acts, um, 
they ask Peter, what, what, what must we do to be saved? And he says, repent and believe in the Lord Jesus. Repent means to change your mind, to turn around, to stop doing what you're doing, in other words, and um, to turn and go the way of God through Jesus Christ. Um, I think that what we have to realize is there's no one right answer as far as a set way that God has to work in a person's life. Because each person is different. Each person has a different level of maturity. Each person has a different understanding. At age seven or eight, I cannot tell you anymore what my specific words were. But I do remember firmly, absolutely believing that Jesus was in my heart. And I look at that moment as the time when when he saved me. Now, you know, there are going to be some Christians, and I've heard this one before, when were you saved? Well, I always used to say, as I said before, I can't name the date, and I always felt bad about that. Not always. I felt bad about that for a long time. I finally heard a great comeback. When were you saved? And they said 2,000 years ago when Jesus died on the cross. <laughs> and that is a great answer when you think about it, because that's when we were saved as far as you know what, what was necessary to save us. Um, so I think it has to do with the person. And, and I think what you said, Mick, about the sincerity of the heart, what happens within our hearts is the important thing, not so much um, you know, what specific words did we say. So does there have to be a time of confession for our sins? Do we, do we need to acknowledge uh, that, we've, that we are sinners? Or can we simply say, okay, yes, I believe in this person named Jesus. I believe he, he died and rose, and I accept that. What is sin? You know, that's that's part of the question. I don't think you have to sit down and, and make a litany of every sin that you ever committed. Um, but if you look at sin as the fact that, hey, I'm trying to do this on my own instead of going through God, and Lord, I want to do it by the grace of Jesus rather than by me, to me, that's repenting. That's saying, I know I've sinned, and I can't do it on my own. I want Jesus in my life to do it for me. And when we think about people who come to the point where they recognize their need for God, I, I believe implicit in that is, is a person's awareness or consciousness of their sin and the sin that separates us from uh, fellowship with God. You know, the Word tells us that if we're in Christ, we've become new creatures, that old things are passed away, and that all things are become uh, new. And I occurs to me, too, that confession is not a one-time thing. Um, from discussions in past programs, I think we recognize that we're not perfect people. We're not? We're not. Not even you, Pete. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, we will continue to sin, and the Bible tells us if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Now, who is us? It's Christians, okay? It recognizes that that we're going to continue to do wrong things, but we need a consciousness of sin. And I think the consciousness that we are sinners living in a world of sin and who will continue to sin makes us recognize our need for the one who died for our sins. I think it goes hand in hand. If it's, if it's not critical to salvation per se, it certainly plays a role 
in leading us to the point when we recognize our need for a Savior. And that's why Jesus came to rec- uh, reconcile us to God the Father, reconciling grace. Hey, what do you know? The name of the program. And um, I guess that the answer to the questions then, Steve, that, that were given today, do Christians need to go to the altar to be saved or say the sinner's prayer would be no to both of them. However, those things are effective ways of having people come to Jesus. Would you say that's accurate? Hopefully, yes. Um, as long as we don't try to box every Christian into those patterns. Yes, sure. Absolutely. And I think it's about time that we're going to be uh, signing off here. This is Pete Vecchi, one of the associate pastors at West Carrollton Church of the Nazarene. Glad to have you with us today. Steve Wilson, Christian author. Mick Wells, co-host of Cross Connection Radio Program. It's been our pleasure to be with you today for Reconciling Grace. This has been Reconciling Grace. Join us again next time as our panel discusses biblical truths centered around the reconciling grace of Jesus Christ.